Father, we love you and we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, who, who paid that ultimate price, who laid down his life so that we could be redeemed, so that we could know not just political freedom, but so that we could know spiritual freedom, life and peace and freedom from sin and death and slavery that comes with evil. And we worship you and we praise you for the grace that we've received. We praise you for the blessings that we have as Americans living in this country and the freedom that we have to come and worship you here. We give you thanks for all of those things. And we pray that as we turn our attention to your word, that our hearts would be lifted up in worship and thanksgiving, that we would grow in knowledge of who you are. Uh, But in addition to that, that our hearts would fall deeper in love with you as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are still pressing on through our epic series, and this is the story of God and man laid out uh, by the Bible, the story of Jesus who laid down his life for our salvation. And uh, I can see some of you, you've been here since the very beginning when we started back in January. We're going to go all the way through to December. And I see a couple of you here this morning where this may be your first time with us. But we're now 20-something weeks into this thing. We're almost halfway, which can you believe that? 2014 is almost halfway over. Um, So I want to remind you about how the story started, okay? No matter how familiar you may be with it. God created us. He created you, he created the universe, and everything in creation, both seen and unseen, came about because he willed it to exist. He created it. And he did it so that his boundless, limitless love could have another sphere in which to spill over into, so that he could pour out his love into this, his creation, his creative masterpiece, if you will. And he created so that through the overabundant outpouring of his love, he could bring glory to his name as the most wonderful, most precious, most beautiful God of all goodness and justice and grace and mercy, the one that his creation would sing to, praises for all that he is and all that he gives and all that he has done and will do. How's that for a reason to create? for his love to spill over and his name to be magnified and glorified. And the Bible tells us in the story of creation that God saw, God looked and saw that all that he had created, and he said, it is very good, it is very good, until Adam and Eve bought into the lies that Satan whispered to them, that they didn't need this love of God. They didn't need to be in his presence. They could actually do it better without God. If they went their own way, things would be better for them. And so they abandoned God, they sinned, and they subjected all of his beautiful creation to the curse. Your life, my life, all of natural creation, it's all been subjected to this terrible curse. And by pursuing our own or their own prideful form of godliness... That was the convincing, that, that was what, would, what they were convinced of, that they could have godliness apart from God. They severed our perfect connection with God and ultimately, as a result, had to be removed from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And as a result as well, we like them, we fall in prey to the wooing of sin. Okay, we know that sin lies. We know it lies 
And we know it's evil, and we know that it kills, and it destroys, and it ruins. And yet, we are strangely infatuated with it, drawn to it. We love it, even though we hate it. It abuses us, and yet we continue to go back to it. And as a result of sin, God appeared to us distanced from us. And one day, ultimately, we will die because of our sin. But that's not where the story ends, okay? That's like chapter two. But it goes on from there because God is never outdone by those who oppose him. And there is none equal to him in power or glory or love or splendor. And so he will suffer no thing in all of creation, the spiritual or physical realm, to steal his glory from his name. He won't allow it. And so from the foundations of the world, God had a plan to save mankind, to save you and save me from the curse of sin and the distance between us and him. And although sin separated us from God, God would do the impossible work of bringing us back into his loving care once again. And this was the plan of his salvation for those who would believe. And why we're making our way through the epic story of the Bible as it unfolds. But before we get to that, that end, that salvation piece for those who believe, I think it's important for us to understand the nature of God and his revelation to us. Okay, Us, his sinful, rebellious creatures. Because we won't grasp, I don't think, the incredible nature of his work of redemption his act of salvation, until we grasp who he is in relation to us and this chasm that sin created between God and man. What I mean by this, it's really not that complicated. Where is God? Why can't we see him? Adam and Eve walked and talked with him in the Garden of Eden. Why can't we? How come we don't have that privilege? They knew the sound of his footprints on the ground. Because it says that they heard him coming and they were afraid. And if he created all of this for us out of his love and for his glory, how come right now he doesn't sit on a literal physical throne where we can approach him and worship him and know him in a physical sense? How do we understand our relationship with God in light of sin and the fact that God is not physically here present with us? And I think the Bible answers this conundrum, this question, by giving us an illustration in the tabernacle, which is our next stop in this ongoing epic story. Maybe you're familiar with that word, tabernacle. It's kind of a funny one. If you're not already familiar with it, you will be by the time we leave here, okay? After the people of of Israel left Egypt, they received God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai, and God instructed them at that point to build him a house, a tent. He told them that for as long as it took them to travel through the desert, the wilderness, to get to the promised land that he had uh, told Abraham he would give to his descendants, God promised that he would go with them, uh, follow them, or, or lead them, I should say, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when they stopped and made camp at his command, he would send his presence to dwell with them physically among them in the tabernacle. And that may sound unexceptional to you. I was sort of reading this saying, this is like, yeah, no big deal, whatever, the presence of God. 
okay? Because I think we're kind of desensitized to this idea as American Christians, and we're removed from it by more than 3,000 years of history. But Exodus 25 verse 22 says that at a particular place, I'm paraphrasing, at a particular place within the tabernacle, God would literally allow his presence to come down and dwell in the midst of his people in all of his power and glory and majesty. Secluded from and removed from frail humanity in a limited form lest all of creation be consumed by his overwhelming presence within the holy of holies inside the tabernacle, the presence of God dwelled with the people of Israel. That is an incredible idea. But the presence of God is not a thing to be taken lightly, okay? The Old Testament picture that we get if you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is a presence that is so weighty and so intense, so holy, that few are ever allowed to enter into it. And in fact, so overwhelming is the presence of God to sinful humanity that the high priest Aaron, who was the first high priest, is warned in Leviticus 16 that should he enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, on any terms outside of those laid out by God, he would die. Death would be the result. And such a crushing blow did sin deal to the relationship between God and man that the Old Testament picture is of a God who is removed from his people, not because God despised his people, but out of sheer necessity because the presence of his holiness in proximity to them in their sin would consume them. And so God dwelt among his people and for their sake remained at a distance from them by the separation of the veil within the tabernacle. I've given you a little picture of the tabernacle. I meant to throw one up on the screen, but even if I, ha- if, even if I had remembered to bring it, you wouldn't be able to see it as well as the picture on your, on your notes there. And I'm going to read a short portion of Exodus 26 to you, and, show, uh, and you can look at that picture of the tabernacle. What I want you to notice is that line there that says the veil. And let me read this. Exodus 26, verses 31 through 34. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And God was said to dwell on that mercy seat on top of the ark of the covenant. So within the tabernacle, you had the holy place where only the priests could go. There was kind of the outer courtyard where anybody from the tribe of Israel could go and worship God. And then you had the holy place where only the priests were allowed to go. And this only after consecrating themselves to enter into the presence of God in the outer chambers of the tabernacle. But then even further within the tabernacle, you had the holy of holies, the most holy place, that inner sanctum. And this is where the presence of God sat then on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. Separated from the holy place, 
by this thick curtain, the veil. And nobody could enter the Holy of Holies when the presence of God filled it. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he was instructed on that day, he would prepare himself through a ritual of sanctification and he would enter into the Holy of Holies with a goat and a a bull to sprinkle the blood of those animals on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. Because God's righteous requirement for sin is that sin be paid for with blood. Romans says the wages of sin is death, signified by blood. And the priest, with what I could only imagine to be much fear and trembling, would don these special garments and would pass through the thick curtain of the veil on this one special day a year into the Holy of Holies to stand in the presence of God and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel according to God's commands. But an animal hardly suffices to actually pay for the sins of a nation, right? I mean, I think that if this ritual doesn't point to something greater, then it would sort of be silly. And let me try and paint a picture with an illustration. If someone murdered one of my children, and I went to court as a result, and the judge told me that justice was served by him giving a goat to me in place of the child that he had taken from me, would you really think that that was a fair sentence? I certainly would not. I would not be pleased with that. And as precious as the life of an animal may be, it's hardly sufficient to actually cover the sins of a person, let alone a nation in total. And so year after year, this ritual was done again and again. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and a bull and a goat would be taken with him as sacrifice to make up for the sins of Israel. And the the ritual went on for hundreds of years behind the veil. First in the tabernacle and then in the temple as it was later constructed. Year after year to atone for the sins of Israel. This ritual went on until, until Jesus was crucified. And when Jesus died, something amazing happened. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51. I've included it on the inside cover if you want to look at it or turn there. We're just going to pause for a second. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the death of Jesus at that moment the relationship between God and man changed drastically and forever. The curtain, which was the sign of God's separateness from his people, from his creation, the veil that guarded his holiness, was torn in two. And the most holy place where the presence of God dwelled in secrecy was exposed and opened to the world. And the presence of God dwelling in the temple, was made accessible to all. The Holy Spirit of God was unleashed on the world in a whole new manner. And God and man were reunited through the death of Jesus. The veil of sin was torn asunder, and man once again found himself with personal access to God. 
No longer did it have to be done through a priest on the day of holy of holy or on the day of atonement in the midst of the holy of holies. The, he, the, the writer of Hebrews explains the whole situation in detail in Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12. And I encourage you to turn there if you have your Bibles. If not, again, it's on that inside cover. Let me read this. He writes, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, this passage refers to several important things pertaining to Christ in the Day of Atonement and what he accomplished that ripped that veil in half. First, it says that Jesus acted as the high priest. And if you remember, only the high priest had the authority to enter into the Holy of Holies that one day of each year on the Day of Atonement. And what it says is Jesus appeared as our true and perfect high priest, able to enter into the presence of God because he himself was God. And he was high priest of the good things that have come. And so what are these good things? The reconciliation of God and man. The restoration through Christ from a bondage of slavery to sin to adoption as children of God. From sin and slavery and death into righteousness and freedom and life. By tearing the veil... Jesus made available to us the very presence of God. Verse 11 goes on and says, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So what is that tent? It's the body of Jesus himself, where the very presence of God dwelled in fullness because Jesus was God incarnate. Do you see the similarities between the tabernacle and Christ? Colossians 1.19 says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so the tabernacle acted as a type of Christ, holding the presence of God, but only in a veiled and partial form, the tabernacle, until Jesus himself would come as the full revelation of God to humankind. Verse 12 then tells us that acting like a high priest, By the use of blood, he entered into the presence of God. Meaning that God's righteous requirement for sin, blood, was satisfied through the blood of Jesus himself. On this final day of atonement, when the sins of the world were covered by the blood of a sacrifice, they weren't covered by a bull or a goat. They were covered by the death of Jesus himself who spilled his blood for our sake so that we may, might be made right. Now, I think we have at least a surface level understanding of this passage from Hebrews 9. And we have a basic understanding of the tabernacle and the significance of the veil and the meaning of the blood. But I need just a few more minutes to focus in with you guys on three verbs found in these two verses of Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. Because I believe that there's a lot more for us to discover here. And verbs are action words, okay? They're used to describe an activity and they usually yield some kind of result. And our first verb is this, when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, 
I want you guys to see just how far God was willing to go to make himself known to us. Think about it for a second. If Christ had never appeared, if he had never taken the initiative to step down into our world, what would we know about God? Only what the Old Testament tells us, which I think is uh, an incomplete revelation of God. And here's the significance behind this idea, okay? Our world is full of people, maybe you're one of them here this morning, full of people who are merely guessing about who God is. They're making conjectures. The line I hear so often these days is, I don't go to church, but I'm a spiritual person, okay? Respectable. You're a spiritual person, but yet you don't know anything about the spiritual realm, You can't see it. You've never been there. And so you have no authority to speak about it. You're just guessing as to what you think that spiritual realm is like and God is like. You believe in a God, but you don't know anything about that God. Except strangely, he very often looks like you, feels like you, thinks like you, and acts like you. That's quite a coincidence, isn't it? Very convenient. See, God exists behind a veil to fallen humanity. He is otherworldly and we are not. We are of this world. And unless God opens up that veil to reveal himself to us, what can we ever know about him? We're stuck. And if you don't know Jesus, then I would say you don't know anything about God. You just have guesses in the dark. You're just throwing darts at the wall, hoping that maybe you get it right. But the beautiful thing here is that Jesus appeared so that we might know who God is. So that our questions about his character and the nature of God could be answered and known with certainty. Certainty. What is God like? If you've ever asked that question, what is God like? Well, look at Jesus who lived and walked and breathed and talked. And by looking at Jesus who was God, we know that God is compassionate, that God is kind, that he is selfless, that he loves with a furious love unlike any other. What is God like? Jesus shows us that he saves, he reveals himself, he appeared, he finds the lost, he rescues the perishing, and he comforts the broken. Jesus shows us what God is like. He appeared so that the veil might be torn and the God of all creation might be known once again. And because Jesus appeared, that verb appeared, this is why we as Christians go and tell other people about him. Okay? Our mission statement at Maricopa Springs Family Church is helping people meet and follow Jesus. We want to be people who go so that Christ appears to those who don't know him. So that they can know him. So that their questions and their lack of certainty can be answered in Christ. We want people to meet him and know him. Now the second verb is in verse 12 and it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. He entered. Now many people think that they can get to a point where they're good enough to enter into the holy places, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And it's simply not true. 
Even many people who call themselves Christians, I would say, believe this, and they're, they're just simply wrong. You will die in your sins long before you can pierce the veil that hides the character of God by your own efforts and your own good works. You will die long before you are ever good enough to enter into the presence of God. And your blood is not a sufficient sacrifice to cover your sins and to allow you to enter into the holy places. Only the perfect, sinless blood of Jesus can earn you the right to approach the holiness of God. And there is no substitute for the blood of Jesus. Only he is qualified to enter into the presence of God because he alone is God. You don't have that in your character. But you and I, being covered by the blood of Jesus, we too can enter into the holy places. He has given us the gift of his righteousness. And the veil that once kept us safely removed from the presence of God has been torn in half by Christ, who alone was righteous enough to enter into the mercy seat, to stand before the presence of God. And all of this now leads us to our third and final verb, And so I'll close with this. Verse 12 at the end says, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus secured our eternal redemption is what it says here in Hebrews. Those who don't know Jesus, they don't know security. They live in uncertainty. They don't know what will happen next. And if you don't know what God is like, Because he's never been revealed to you. And he lives behind a veil of otherworldliness. Because he is God and you are not. And if you can't enter into his presence of your own accord. Through your own worthiness and righteousness. And you don't know exactly what it takes to draw near to him. Then you have no security. Without these verbs in place. You're guessing and you have no security. You're grasping at straws and you're floundering. And so listen closely. Any of you who are in this room this morning and you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, you have no eternal security. Life after death is not guaranteed for you. And at any moment, your life may be washed away and your eternal destiny is not secure. And that should cause you to break out in sweat. You are vulnerable and you have no salvation. But for those of us in this room who believe, for those of us who do know Jesus, we can sleep soundly. We can rest with assurance. We can be certain that our eternal destiny is secure because your salvation has been won by Jesus and it is secure. It cannot be taken away. In 1967, a company called Penrith Engineering Works manufactured the world's largest bolts ever made. If you can imagine this, they were created to actually bolt two giant super tanker oil transport ships together to sail the seas simultaneously. They were over 27 feet tall, almost three stories tall, and four feet in diameter, something like this. 
They weighed just under 30,000 pounds each. And these bolts were secure. Whatever you bolted with these bad boys wasn't going anywhere, right? You want your kid to stay someplace? Bolt them down with that. (laughs) And this is the kind of security that we have in Jesus who has secured our eternal redemption. There is simply no comparison. The great theologian Martin Luther, maybe you've heard this before, he has an often misquoted saying where he encouraged a fellow believer, sin boldly. Sin boldly. Did he mean that Christians should sin indiscriminately? As if we should sin often and wildly and extravagantly? No, of course not. That's not what Martin Luther meant. What he meant is that we can always confidently come back to Jesus when we've sinned because the bolts that Christ has bolted us to the love of the Father with are incomparable imperishable in comparison to the bolts of sin which look something maybe like this i mean how long do you think this bolt right here if you can even see it from the back row would last holding two super tanker oil ships together right i think i can break this bolt with just a hammer i mean i Hammer. Yeah, no, not with my muscles. I can bend it at least. It's weak. It has no power. For those of us who trust in Jesus for our security, this tiny, inconsequential bolt of sin, it has no power to hold us to death. It has no power over us to keep us chained. It's useless and it's worthless in comparison to the secure bolts with which Jesus holds us to the love of the Father. And so the point is this, the next time that you sin, because you will, I will, before the day is over, I will again, remember that Jesus has you bolted securely to the grace of God and you cannot be removed. And so you can boldly approach the mercy seat of God within the veil through Christ who has already made the way for you. Because Jesus, who is our high priest, has secured your eternal redemption. The full quote by Luther says this, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. In other words, sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin and death and the world. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the bolts of the righteousness of Christ that keep us steadfastly attached to your great love and mercy at work in our lives. We thank you that no power of sin, no power of death, no power of hell can overcome the work that Christ has done. And we praise you that we are secure. And God, would you make us into people who live courageously in that security? Not wallowing in our sins, not repenting insincerely for the ways in which we've wronged you, but confidently coming before you through the work that Jesus did for us under his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. God, would you change us into people who know that we are secure and live securely in the truth of what Jesus has done for us. Amen.